0: From the University of Cambridge, this is Election, the politics podcast. My name is David Runciman, and we've reached what's meant to be the penultimate episode in this series. It feels like we're gonna be leaving a lot left unresolved. This week, we'll assess the condition of the Trump bandwagon, as it sputters its way out of Wisconsin and on towards what might well be a contested convention. And we'll also be taking stock of the current state of the EU referendum campaign. My special guest is Professor Anand Menon, who's been leading a project to try and give voters and commentators the real facts about the EU before they decide whether to leave or to stay. He tells me just how little factual basis there is for what we've been told so far. We've done a study of sort of 12
1: or 13 areas of the campaign where we look at the claims made by the Leave and Remain camp and subject them to analysis and say, so what is the truth behind this? And what has been striking is almost across the board both camps are getting it wrong. And why some of the most important players may still be to make up their minds. The papers are interesting, and they're interesting because whilst there has always been a fairly ugly tone about the coverage of the European Union in much of our press, a large chunk of even the Tory press hasn't actually declared in terms of where it wants people to vote when it comes to the referendum. Stay tuned
0: for that and a whole lot more. First, I'm joined by our regular panelists Helen Thompson, Aaron Rapport, and Finbar Livesey. Wisconsin, last night. Aaron, Wisconsin, I think of it as the home of the Green Bay Packers and people with funny shaped cheese foam hats. Is it also now going to be known as the place that did for the Donald after Ted Cruz pretty roundly defeated him?
2: Being from Minnesota, I'd like to quote Freud and say that I have basically a pathology with the, that he would call the narcissism of small differences. So I have a big rivalry with Wisconsin. That said...
0: So you don't want them to claim the credit for seeing off him, Donald Trump? I
2: don't want them to claim the credit. And yet it's interesting in that because Minnesota and uh, Wisconsin are so similar, I wasn't necessarily surprised to see that Trump didn't do well there because he also didn't do well in uh, the Minnesota caucus rather than primary. So of course, course, it's too soon by, by any stretch of the imagination to say that Trump has been done off um, because we're getting ready for a whole bunch of machinations to take place in Cleveland, which would be interesting because it'll be a brokered convention with no brokers. But yeah, this comes on a path of a week of things where Donald said some interesting things, including some things that got eyebrows raised regarding nuclear proliferation in East Asia. Not that I think that's what primary voters are thinking about in Wisconsin, but... But it raised your eyebrows. <laughs> it raised my eyebrows quite a bit. One of them almost came right off. I think it was the left one, but it's, it's been firmly reattached since. Helen... Bernie Sanders also
0: won in Wisconsin. So we now have these two races, Hillary stumbling towards victory, pursued by an old man that she can't shake off, who's won seven of the last eight contests. The Republican contest now, Trump stumbling towards Cleveland, pursued by a man who looks like he's now got his teeth into him and is possibly going to bring him down. When I was thinking about this last night, I thought, these are the four worst candidates for president I can imagine. I mean, Trump is a dreadful candidate for president. Ted Cruz is a thuggish, ultra-conservative huckster. Hillary Clinton is a long way past her best. And Bernie Sanders is a nice old man who says some interesting things, but he's just not a plausible candidate for president. I tried to think, has there been a worse election cycle, 1976? Jimmy Carter, Gerald Ford, Ronald Reagan these were titans compared to this lot or am I being am I just tired we've been doing this too long?
3: No I think that there's something very odd and rather dispiriting in fact deeply dispiriting going on with this election and I think that you can see it most clearly perhaps in thinking that if the contest turns out to be Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump which I think there are some reasons to be sceptical as to um, whether it will be that we're having a contest then between two people with very, very low approval ratings. No one will have run for presidency of the, either of the candidates with the kind of low approval ratings that either of these two people have. One of them is a complete neophyte in politics and one of them is under serious investigation by the FBI. Which you
0: could do with being a bit more of a neophyte.
3: <laughs> there, you know, there are good reasons to think that both of these candidatures for different reasons are going to be derailed by the time we get to the summer. And that's a, a completely unprecedented position for American democracy to be in when the frontrunners are this week.
0: Fimba, what do you think the implications of this are that we're seeing a race between a
4: bunch of what look like unelectable candidates? Well, the implications are that we're going to be in a very difficult situation come November and into January, because there'll be a transition into an incredibly weak presidential administration. And there's also the potential that the House and the Senate are going to change hands as well, but on very, very fine margins. So essentially, gridlock, But also, I think, unfortunately, what you're going to see is rather than a retrenchment and a conversation which becomes more constructive, things are probably going to become more polarized. I think the Republicans are going to, as the phrase has been used, double down on the kinds of strategies they've been using about government not working and the vitriol that comes with it. And I think there's going to be a serious question asked as well, as you said, because, you know, Sanders, nice, cuddly man that he is asking interesting questions, is asking questions that pull... Clinton and other established Democrats back towards the left, but it leaves them confused rather than with a clear strategy. We don't normally do this, but I'm going to actually read out
0: something that was written over the past week by uh, Hacker and Pearson, who wrote one of the best recent books about American politics called Winner Take All Politics, which tried to explain some of the broader trends and dissatisfactions that are running through the American political establishment. They read an article in the New York Times Discussing the possibility that sometimes mooted that Trump's candidacy, however it plays out, is catastrophic for the Republican Party and it's going to split the party. Let me read what they said. This feeds off directly what Finbar was just talking about. I quote Try this setup instead. It's 2017. After Mr. Trump's landslide defeat, or Mr. Cruz's, President Clinton has a Democratic Senate and the House of Representatives. The Republican National Committee has just released its latest postmortem. It probably looks a lot like post-2012 soul-searching, the Growth and Opportunity Project, which encouraged moderation in tone and inclusiveness in policy. But that blueprint is ignored. Instead, the party quickly regroups in opposition to the incoming administration. Most Republican voters hate Mrs. Clinton even more than they hated Mr. Obama. The Conservative apparatus for sowing discontent with the new administration is in place, flush with cash and battle tested. So, Helen, that sounds to me actually like a fairly plausible scenario and also quite a bleak one.
3: I think that it is. And if you look at what's happened in the midterm elections for the last two Democratic presidents, particularly the first midterms that they faced, so Clinton in 1994 and uh, Obama in 2010, they've been absolutely disastrous for the Democratic Party. In the last case, in Obama's case, in 2010, the worst democratic performance in the House for 50, 60 years, it's not difficult at all to see how that kind of scenario plays out. I think, though, that there is a case for saying that there is something though so dysfunctional going on with the Republican Party this time in terms of the breakdown of relationship between the party and elites and voters. And this has been coming really ever since the 2008 election, at least, probably actually in the second term of the the Bush administration, to make us think that maybe, though, that the Republican Party can't go back to the same playbook that it's tried because if it is the case that the Republican Party elite takes the nomination away from Trump at Cleveland in the summer, I don't think the Republican Party can be the same again.
0: Aaron, Sean Trendy, who we spoke to on this podcast a few weeks ago, wrote a piece rebutting a little what Hacker and Pearson said there, trying to make the case that these things are more cyclical than that. That implies there's some doubling down going on that's leading who knows where, because it can't carry on forever. You can't keep undermining government on the Republican side and then inherit the White House and expect to be able to govern. His line is that American politics just goes through these cycles. They often track economic fortunes, but also parties can kind of bounce back from anything. And he gives the example of the Democratic Party after the Civil War. They were on the wrong side of that argument. Yes. And they bounced
2: back. If you can bounce back from the Civil War, you can bounce back from Trump. That's his line. That's a great bumper sticker or T-shirt, I think, uh, moving forward. Uh, Right. That is true, I think. The problem with that as a, a social scientist is kind of predicting how exactly that takes place right? And to bounce back from something like Trump, but really not so much Trump, so much as the demographic shifts that we're seeing in the United States towards a less white population. And at the same time, a sorting of people largely by race into the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. That's not the type of dynamic that's going to be able to turn on a dime. And so, yes, I agree. Certainly, parties have have come back from worse, not the Whigs, uh, but parties have yeah, come back. Parties do occasionally not come parties back. Parties do occasionally not come back. But the problem with that, putting my social scientist hat on, is I say, yes, that's possible. If you have any ideas what that looks like in the future, I'd be happy to entertain them. I, I do not. Finbar,
0: do you feel that this is, and we're going to come on to this next week when we try and sum up some of the themes that we've been talking about. And in a sense, the big question of democratic politics at the moment is whether this is cyclical or it is something else. That is, it's a turning point and we're heading towards something that we're not really sure what it's going to look like. And I don't think we can know. And I'll try and force people to take a view on this next week, so you don't have to take a view on it this week. But um, there is a lot of talk that what Trump symbolises for the Republican Party is something much more serious than just going through one of those patterns of retrenchment, regrouping, and then coming back stronger. Your feeling on that?
4: I think it's actually more to do with the whole of the political system. I think that the Republican Party, as Helen was saying, are going to go through some version of catharsis, uh, especially if there is a landslide defeat, which looks highly likely, no matter whether it's Cruz or Trump. But you've got to ask the bigger questions about money and politics, about the role of the media in politics, about the relationship between the voter and the, especially in America, in terms of the party structures, the way in which delegates get selected, the way in which the Electoral College works is complicated and also looks fundamentally to be broken. So will we go through a period where the politics fundamentally changes? Nobody can know. I would hope that it means that there is a high moment of reflection around all of the issues of money and power and media, etc. But I don't have faith that there's enough momentum behind what's happened so far. It hasn't been enough of a car crash for me yet to force that level of change.
0: And just to draw one historical analogy, because we like to do that here to go back to 1976, the hope was that that was a moment post Watergate a real point of crisis for American democracy to rethink how the whole thing works Jimmy Carter was coming in a fresh broom no (laughs) I mean it actually took Ronald Reagan and a more traditional kind of turning of the wheel to change American politics and it didn't fundamentally change American politics in some of the ways Finbar talked about it simply changed some of the economic and demographic dynamics of it that tends to be how it goes
2: Yes, Jimmy, the ultimate outsider, peanut farmer uh, from Georgia. The thing about Jimmy Carter was he wasn't exactly a transformative candidate. In fact, he was somebody who was in, in many ways straddling this line of trying to defend the New Deal slash Great Society legacy, while at the same time kind of reform the Democrats in a way that would make them leaner, sleeker, a little bit less the party of big government tax and spend. And he faced something of a mutant within his own ranks. The Democrats, even if Carter was ready to change to a certain extent, and if the American people were ready to change, the Democratic Party was not ready to change in in 1976, which hurt him considerably moving forward into uh, the election against Ronald Reagan.
0: Thank you to Helen, Aaron, and Finbar.
2: Next week, I'm going to ask
0: them to predict what they think is really going to happen. Predicting the future is a perilous business at the best of times, even when the results of an election are already in. A few weeks ago, we covered the Irish general election, which produced a spectacularly inconclusive result. And we promised then that we would catch up on what's been happening since. Ireland's politicians have been trying to cobble together a government. To my knowledge, they haven't succeeded so far. But let's catch up with Barry Colfer, who covered the election for us. Barry, what has actually been going on since we discussed the result?
5: That's right. There's no government yet. We've had St. Patrick's Day and the centenary of the 1916 Rising, which were great distractions for the public. But just uh, later on this afternoon, which is Wednesday the 6th of April, the Dáil will meet for the second time to try and elect a Taoiseach. So what we've had so far, there was one vote for Taoiseach two weeks ago, which was inconclusive. And what we've had is the public has watched whilst the, the, the bigger parties, so that's Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, Have been trying to talk to some of the plethora of independents that we got. There were 23 independents. Inevitably, looking at the numbers, the only possible coalition, or they're not calling it a coalition as well, in terms of kind of the new dawn of Irish politics. Fine Gael are now talking about having a partnership, which is completely different. in in some respects it actually is different because what we're we're possibly going to have is a is a minority government finagel with their 50 seats may be supported by a handful of the of the independents that we have or smaller parties and the only way to avoid an election and remember i mentioned last time anybody involved in that election wants to avoid having to do that again not just for financial reasons but as well for um Emotional reasons. Emotional reasons, yeah. For, and
0: pragmatic reasons, because the public aren't going to reward them for it.
5: Precisely, for, for all of those reasons. So the expectation is the vote this afternoon to elect a new Taoiseach will, will still be inconclusive. They've been in the desert for seven weeks, the two main parties. Are they going to sit down this afternoon and see if they can cobble together some kind of not a coalition? But when is a coalition not a coalition? Some kind of partnership.
0: And how long could this go on for? Belgium is always held up as the famous example of a country that did fine without a government for more than a year seven weeks it isn't that long to be without a government. I mean, it is striking the difference between uh, systems like this and the British system where people before the formation of the coalition in 2010 got incredibly panicky because Britain went five days without knowing who the Prime Minister was. So are people getting a tool twitchy that Ireland needs a government or could Ireland happily go along with no, that one? Really. The
5: reality is there's no, there's no constitutional reason why we have to have a government by, by a particular time. What, What is going to be interesting is we have a fairly popular president in in Michael D. Higgins. He's a Labour Party president elected in 2011. When it comes to a dissolution of the Dáil, much like in in other systems, that if the Dáil is unable to form a government, the acting Taoiseach, who is still Enda Kenny, will have to go to the auris. That's the kind of shorthand in Ireland for going to call upon the president to seek a dissolution of the Dáil. And Michael D. has the prerogative of refusing that. So we, we, we haven't had a situation in the past where constitutionally the president is actually a member of the Oireachtas which is the upper house the lower house and the president um, and the president does have to provide the seal of office to all the ministers but he or she because we have had two lady presidents have never been in such a potentially significant role in terms of forming the forming the door that I don't ma- I don't imagine we're in any massive rush but at the same time there are a lot of very pressing issues
0: and of course when I say Ireland doesn't have a government as you say it does there's an acting government and Even when Belgium famously didn't have a government, of course it did. The civil service keeps operating, decisions keep getting made. But contentious political issues get deferred. That's the difference. What would you say is the most pressing contentious political issue that's being deferred because it's proving impossible to form a new government?
5: Well, there are two different words, right? Pressing and contentious. In terms of pressing, what is most obvious around the country is... uh, is the cost of housing, right? But that's, that's been the case in Ireland since the early 90s, that the price of housing went up by nearly 500% over the 1990s, from, from 1991 to 2011, if I remember correctly. What is the most contentious issue, however, is the charging for water. That part of our suite of reforms that was introduced as part of our Troika bailout included um, a specific charge for the provision of water services in the home. This is something that had previously been covered by direct taxation the actual charge now that has been levied by the previous government which has become deeply unpopular and the the touchstone around which this kind of slow dance before the formation of a government is happening and we get this right one person households have to pay 130 euros a year and houses of two adults or more will have to pay 260 euros a year so in the greater scheme of things it's not a huge amount of money but this has really become the issue that people are going to in terms of the different parties have had different approaches to what they would do with water
0: And is the understanding that whoever the new government are, they have to do something about this, repeal this? There is no way to form a government in Ireland that doesn't address this issue.
5: Bizarrely enough, in my view, bizarrely enough, that is exactly right, that the Fianna Gael have said it's going to stay as it is. Fianna Fáil, who are actually involved with the Troika bailout, so they were involved at the very beginning of the architecture of the system, have said they want to cancel the Irish water system. Sinn Féin want to cancel them altogether, despite imposing... Uh, water charges in the north of Ireland, which is a different context, I appreciate. But this really has become the issue around which the government will be formed or not. You're listening to Election, the Cambridge Politics
0: Podcast. Now from confusion in Ireland to uncertainty about the European Union. Before we speak to Anand Menon about challenging popular ignorance over Europe, We sent Lizzie Presser out onto the streets of Cambridge to ask voters here if they felt they needed to be better informed about the EU and how it works before they cast their votes in the referendum on June the 23rd. I think I know enough about it and what I'm interested in. So I spend a lot of time on the continent and I know the problems that arise when you don't have walk-through borders. And the security aspect doesn't come into it as far as I'm concerned. You might as well go back to the system which makes it nice and easy for driving through the whole of Europe without ever stopping to get out of the car, if maybe.
5: Yes, I do. i just like a general
3: overview, something that's simple, easy to understand. I know there's probably websites, but I don't know whether they're biased or whether... They would give me unbiased information, so, yeah, some websites that I could trust what they're saying. True information, not this made up. I think they will mask everything, government, any MP. I've lived here long enough. I've voted against going into Europe when it first started, and I'll vote against it now. Because, that, if, OK, so we might go downhill a bit, but that's when the British people pick themselves up and work. That's what we'll do.
5: I have all the information I need. I'm voting to leave, to get back control over the country. Our own comings and goings in this country is getting out of our hands. So it's really to get all that back. Yes, it's a lot more. At the
3: minute, I'm down there because I've got a granddaughter sick in the hospital. If there wasn't so many overseas visitors who just decide to come here and stay, things might be different, but they need to send them all home. So our, our children and everybody gets the care they need. We need to know a lot more what's going to happen with the immigration and how they're going
5: to sort it all out? Yes, I think so. So far it's been kind of financial, like how much each household would stand to lose or gain if things changed and stuff like that, and I think actually what we need is more ideological stuff, more why is the EU here, what's its history, what can it offer us? The security it can give us, the human rights stuff, how the EU can protect us from, from our government, really. And just a bit more information rather than tub-thumping and sabre-rattling that we seem to be getting now.
0: Lizzie Presser talking to voters in Cambridge. My special guest this week is Anand Menon of King's College London, who heads up the UK in a Changing Europe initiative. Its mission is to bring the facts about the EU to people who need to be better informed. And frankly, I think that includes all of us. I started by asking him how his project works.
1: We've done a number of things, and part of it are these town hall meetings that we're holding all around the country. They're deliberately not question time style, so what we do is... We take four or five academic experts, invite a local population along and just say, if you've got any questions, ask them. And the point is to be impartial and informative and just to help people make up their own minds. I mean, I don't know if you watch Question Time, but what is striking is every week on Question Time now, someone in the audience throws up their hands and says, we'd like some facts, we don't know anything. And the aim of these things is to try and plug that hole, if you like.
0: So what are the things that people most want to know about? Where where does the public feel it's most ignorant about Europe? Well, it's interesting. That kind of depends on the demographic. What I've found systematically is,
1: if I talk at schools, the first or second question is always about travel. You know, if we leave the EU, will we still be able to travel in Europe? If you take a sort of older general public audience, the questions vary, but they've ranged from things to do with, is the European Union democratic, to what happens to my finances if we leave? What happens to my shop, the price of my shopping if we leave?
0: But with a question like, is the European Union democratic, are you going to be able to answer that with facts? I mean, don't you immediately then get into a back and forth with the audience about their expectations of what a democracy is? Yeah, but I think what you have to do is basically
1: introduce them to the ways of thinking about what democracy is, that there is no yes or no answer. It's a sliding scale. And what we've tended to do with these occasions is say, OK, if you take the extreme of a traditional international organisation and the other extreme of a democratic nation-state... The EU is different from both these models in the following ways. There are, I mean, there are lots of ways of getting into that question. I mean, another way of tackling it has been to say, well, look, one of the interesting things about the EU is it actually has no formal powers over any of the areas that voters are most interested in. So if you, if you do a poll of voters and say, what issues matter to you in terms of democratic politics, they will say education, welfare, tax, health, always will be in the top five or six issues. So one of the discussions we always have at these things is to what extent do you need the same sort of democratic underpinnings for an organisation that doesn't do those sorts of things? I mean, we try to make this a discussion rather than a, a tutorial. And to date, Touchwood they've worked quite
0: well. Where do you think is the biggest gulf in understanding between people's views, expectations about the EU and then the kinds of facts that you're giving them back? Where have you come across the widest gap? Gosh, where to start? The first
1: thing I'd say is we're actually being asked to answer a question that no one knows the answer to in the sense that no one, however well informed, knows what the relationship we are going to have with the EU will be if we leave. But actually, it has to be said, the British public are very, very ill informed about the European Union uh, for a variety of reasons. But, you know, there is polling that shows that in terms of their knowledge of the basic facts about the EU, the Brits score the worst out of all member states.
0: What's the biggest misconception, do you think?
1: There are misconceptions about the institutions, so the notion that the, the European Commission imposes laws on us. There are misconceptions about what the single market is. There are misconceptions about whether or not we're in Schengen and what it means and whether we control our borders. There are misconceptions. There are two things that have been striking, I suppose. is One, the depth of ignorance about the European Union, and B, the thirst for more knowledge,
0: and do you think this is one of the ways in which this referendum and, and the campaign is different from the Scottish one, in that there were obviously myths and misconceptions around the relationship between Scotland and the rest of the UK, but it was also starting from a base point of people's first-hand experience and knowledge. And in this case, like you say, there's just such a gap, in a sense, between the ways in which people encounter the European Union and what they believe they know about it, and how it actually works. Is, is this referendum campaign different in that respect? I mean, for me, the fundamental difference between the Scottish referendum and this one was
1: that there was an emotional aspect to the referendum in Scotland. A question of identity, a question of community, a question of a very strong political narrative about Scotland that mobilised people and I think got them interested and got them willing to go out and find things out. That is singularly absent in this one. What has been striking about this referendum is is its transactionalist nature. Even the Remain camp isn't particularly going out and selling the benefits of our EU membership. They're selling the fear of what would happen if we left. So the, the emotional underpinnings that leads people to go out and take an interest and get informed just isn't there.
2: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: Are
0: you getting any emotional response in in these encounters that you have between your experts and the public in that as you explain how the EU works or as you challenge certain preconceptions are you getting pushback are you are you getting a sense of some of the anger that does seem to be out there in relation not just to the EU but to a range of political institutions the biggest
1: source of frustration we've come across is is frustration about how little people are being informed rather than anger at the European Union itself obviously In our audiences, we've had people that want to leave the EU and that don't have a high opinion of the EU. That's absolutely fine. But insofar as there is is anger at these meetings, it's anger at the fact that politicians aren't informing people and that the debate is couched at a level of generality that doesn't really help anyone.
0: I think last week, Daniel Finkelstein wrote an article in The Times about the question that we're talking about here, which is... How much better informed do people need to be about the EU before they can cast their vote? And he made the case that you often hear from journalists, also sometimes from political scientists, that in a sense there aren't really any facts here. All of the facts are subject to interpretation. There is no set of facts that will satisfy the public's desire to know how it really works because everything will need to be filtered by their preconceptions. I mean, what's your sense of that? Are there any facts that cut through? Or in the end, do you feel with these audiences at the end of one of your sessions? though they might be better informed, they're still seeing what you're telling them through a preconceived set of ideas about their fundamental political beliefs.
1: Well, I think everyone filters things through their preconceived ideas. What's interesting about the European Union, of course, is it's it's very hard to choose based on your pre-existing political allegiances. That's to say you can be Labour and remain, you can be Labour and leave, you can be Conservative and remain, you can be Conservative and leave. And that's one of the confusions is that this doesn't map neatly onto existing political cleavages. And I think that leaves people more confused than they would be over other issues because they're just not getting a clear steer. If you're a Conservative and you're thinking, what should a Conservative do? Then there are two contradictory answers you can have. You can, you can be with the Brexiteers or you can be with the Remainers. That being said, there is always in politics that twofold dimension of this being partly about fact, partly about emotion, And I suppose people vary in how susceptible they are to the facts. I mean, the interesting issue here, I think, is migration. You will get some people who, when they hear the statistics about migration and the fact that EU migrants, according to all the economic evidence, contribute more than they take from the British economy, will say, oh, I didn't realise that, and might start to change their minds. For other people, you know, perfectly legitimately, this is a question of identity and control. And they'll say, well, actually, those sort of data don't really bother me. The fact is, I want our country to be able to choose who comes in. And that's that's a matter of emotion as much as cold logic
0: or reasoning. And do you get the kind of pushback that says that those facts and figures that you give them, ostensibly you're neutral, but when you present a set of facts like that, it sounds very much like you're on one side of the argument. You're essentially giving a broadly pro-European perspective. Are you able in this kind of project to come across as genuinely above the fray, or do you end up getting sucked into one or other side of these arguments? What we like to think is we go where the evidence takes us. There are some
1: places where it's perfectly clear that one or other, or indeed both of the rival campaigns, are simply talking nonsense. So the idea that people can come into Britain without having their passports checked and that this is a risk to our security, is patently untrue. As anyone, even with a British passport who's coming to Britain, knows, your passport always gets checked. So if we see something that is empirically untrue, we're happy to point it out, regardless of whether that makes us look pro or anti one side or the other. In general, actually, the facts don't push us massively in one way or the other. So if you take the economics, for instance, most economists will say that the single market has been good for the British economy in the sense of, since we joined the European community, they reckon that there's been an 8 to 10% bump in the size of the British economy because of EU membership. What they'll also say, however, is that effect was very heavily front-loaded. It's not going to continue because it was a result of us being exposed to the competition of the common market, and we might cling on to those gains even if we leave. So actually it's hard to find areas where the facts unequivocally point you one way or the other.
0: We're said at the moment to be living through uh, an age of populist politics, and one of the things that that means when people say that is a kind of anti-elitism and, in some respects, anti-expertise politics. The public are said to be very suspicious of being told what to think by people who claim to know better than they do. So you're you're on the front line of that cleavage as well, not just these divisions over Europe, but the what might be the fundamental cleavage in our politics at the moment between the populist side of the argument and what's sometimes called the establishment or the expert side of the argument. So are, are you encountering that gap? I mean, do do you, do you have a sense as you go out there that we do live in an age where people are more suspicious of expertise than they used to be? No, not really. I mean, I would distinguish between People being told what to think by politicians
1: and people being told what to think by other people. They do polls on this occasionally on, on which professions are trusted. And actually, much to my surprise, academics tend to do quite well in those polls. And a lot better uh, than journalists. <laughs> I think everyone does better than journalists, <laughs> apart from perhaps politicians. Yeah. <laughs> they're neck and neck at the bottom. So in that sense, no, I mean, I think, I think populism is a movement against an establishment that is made up of politicians largely. And people are suspicious of what politicians say. In general, to date, people have taken us at our word that they've been convinced that we're not trying to propound a a particular line and that we're actually trying to be uh, honest and impartial. And in fact, one of the things we're doing, we should be launching it in the next week or 10 days or so, is we've done a study of sort of 12 or 13 areas of the campaign where we look at the claims made by the Leave and Remain camp and subject them to analysis and say, so what is the truth behind
0: this? And what has been striking is almost across the board, both camps are getting it wrong. Are you getting much sense that the newspapers are having an impact here in that this is a campaign where the press are taking a pretty clear role on one side, that what's sometimes called the Tory press? There is a strong Brexit slant a lot of newspaper coverage is that one of the things that you're having to push back against i think people take what they read in their
1: newspapers with a pinch of salt but the papers are interesting and they're interesting because whilst there has always been a fairly ugly tone about the coverage of the european union in much of our press a large chunk of even the tory press hasn't actually declared in terms of where it wants people to vote when it comes to the referendum so you take a paper like the the Daily Telegraph, whose comment pages are littered by what you could call Eurosceptic commentary, or even The Sun, neither of those has unequivocally as yet come out in an editorial and told people that they want them to vote
0: leave. But I would be surprised, wouldn't you, if they came out closer to the day and told people they wanted them to vote stay? Well, cynically, no, I wouldn't be massively surprised. I think if the polls are tending towards a Remain vote, there are certain newspapers that are keener to be on the winning side than they are to be consistent in their argument. That's really interesting. it would be fascinating to see. So we're now straying dangerously close to the territory where I'm going to push you to be somewhat less neutral and give me a sense of how you think it's actually going or likely to go. Um, if we can inch towards that, I just want to start by asking you about something which has started to come up a lot. Anxiety on the remain side that the Labour Party is failing to communicate a clear message on this. As you say, if you're a Conservative, you're being pulled in two different directions. If you're a Labour voter, you're maybe not being pulled in any direction. That's one of the real anxieties here, especially among young people who all the polling suggests are broadly pro-European. But they're not being given a strong steer that this is an important issue that they need to get out and mobilise and vote around. Are you getting any of that sense from your audiences that some some of the confusion is on the Labour side because they're not being told by the party a clear line on this issue? Absolutely. And you do
1: hear the sort of refrain, where is Alan Johnson, who is heading the Labour in campaign and hasn't been at all visible as yet during the campaign. I'd say several things about this. Firstly, the Labour Party is divided because there is a Labour leave movement with people like Gisela Stewart and Kate Hoey prominent within it. Secondly, there are plenty of Labour MPs who will tell you quite freely that Jeremy Corbyn is actually a sceptic and had he had his own way, wouldn't be campaigning in order to stay in because he's, he's at best lukewarm about the benefits of EU membership. And I think the third thing is a genuine bind that the Labour Party finds itself in. The Labour Party was very, very scarred by its experience in Scotland where it campaigned on the same side as the Conservatives and then was all too easily portrayed as part of that Westminster establishment by the SNP. Look at them, they're all the same, they're all on the same side, they're all saying the same things, and as a result received a thrashing in in the subsequent election in Scotland. And there is a real fear, I think, amongst the Labour hierarchy that if they don't manage to come up with a distinct, pro-EU message and are just seen as campaigning alongside big business and David Cameron, the same thing that could happen to them in a number of traditional Labour seats. That is to say that after the referendum, UKIP might lose the referendum but win the subsequent politics and UKIP will do what the SNP did and go out and say Labour, Tory, all the bloody same, you need to vote for a party that is putting forward something different and Labour are worried that that will gain traction in their traditional heartlands.
0: I think you're right, and that that really is a bind, because the risk the other way is that without a commitment by the Labour Party to Labour supporters that this is a vote that needs to be won by the Remain side, it may well be lost.
1: Yeah, and I think what most pollsters are saying is that turnout will be absolutely
0: critical here.
1: If you average out the polls, there is a small advantage for the Remain side. That being said, there are some pollsters who are suggesting that Leavers are relatively more likely to actually vote. What the Remain side needs is to ensure, particularly that young people, who traditionally are very loath to get off their backsides and go and actually put an X in a box, that they actually go and vote in this. Otherwise, there is a significant possibility that
0: we will vote to leave. And given what you said about the fact that no one can really say what that would mean, but I think we could all agree it would be momentous in some respect or another, or in many respects, do you have a feeling that some people I talk to have Which is just how little actual attention is being focused on this issue at the moment. It's everyone's aware of it. It's kind of in the air we breathe. People are talking about it, but that sense that we might be sleepwalking to something which could change not just British politics but, in a sense, British history. It's only a few weeks away, and there isn't any of the real sense of urgency sort of knife-edge tension, even that there was with the Scottish referendum with this one. And yet the consequences of this one could be much more momentous, not least, because it could trigger another Scottish referendum.
1: Well, look, I I disagree slightly in the sense that I think it's, what, 78 days away? Not that we're counting. And that's quite a while. And, you know, in the interim, we have another separate set of elections. Actually, I I would say almost the opposite, that I'm surprised at the degree to which the EU issue is dominating the media at the moment when we're so far away. I imagine there will be something of a lull over the local and devolved elections. And then, you know, the EU issue will come back with a force in early June. The official campaign hasn't even started yet. That doesn't start until mid-April.
0: So on that version of what might be going to happen, do you think that this is going to conform to a traditional referendum campaign model, which is as we get closer to the day of decision people's minds will be focused and they will be focused around the risks that changing the status quo pose, that there will be a move back towards better the devil you know. Well, two things. Firstly,
1: when you say traditional referendum model, you could mean the Scottish referendum or you could mean the police commissioner's
0: referendum, and they're both very different models. So, <laughs> Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I suppose I'm thinking uh, of a sort of international comparison where referendums generally not just in this country but in other countries favour the status quo as you get nearer the vote. Yeah this is this is tended to be the case that
1: experts on on referendums will say that undeciders tend to break two to one in favour of the status quo in developed countries where they have referendums and this might well be the case here and that explains the nature of the campaign because the campaigns on both sides are about risk and what the Leave campaign are trying to do is to make remaining seem riskier than going. And that is why they use the language of the EU ratchet, i.e. we joined a common market, all of a sudden we've got this thing where a Commission president is talking about a European army, do not believe for a moment that if we stay in the European Union we're going to stay at the status quo, they're going to keep pushing us and dragging us, kicking and screaming towards the European super-state they all want. So I think the Leave campaign is all too aware of the need to make the status quo look more dangerous, more uncertain and less stable than the alternative.
0: And presumably one of the things about laying the facts out is that it undercuts the arguments both ways that try to to use that phrase, ratchet up the fear and the feeling that you'll be trapped if you, you find yourself on the wrong side of this divide, that what the facts show is that all of the stories are more complicated than that.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. I find myself almost repeating in my sleep nowadays the
0: phrase, well, that's not strictly
1: true, which we're saying an awful lot in response to all these claims. There is a lot of bluff and bluster out there on both sides. I mean, I referred earlier to Ian Duncan Smith talking about, you know, our open borders. Equally, uh, the head of the London Stock Exchange yesterday came out with a statement basically saying it'll be the end of the world as we know it if we leave the EU and the United States will have to intervene in Europe again, which I think was equally silly. You know, it's boring,
0: but true. The truth lies somewhere in between these sort of apocalyptic visions. So I'm not going to ask you how you think it's going to go unless you want to say, which I'm assuming that you don't because it doesn't. Well, I genuinely don't know. So <laughs> okay. you can ask away and I'll, I'll just say that. Um But I, I am going to ask you how you think these last 78 days are going to go. I mean, do you think, so as you said, the official campaign hasn't started Where is Alan Johnson? Maybe he's holding fire. Maybe he's being very shrewd and he wants to make more of an impact nearer the time. We've seen a lot of Boris. um, We've seen a certain amount of David Cameron. But there are lots of political figures who have sort of kept their powder dry. Do you think we're actually going to see a much broader range of arguments and and political personalities jumping in? Or do you think this is still going to be dominated by the people that we've come to associate with this argument on either side? They've sort of already cornered the market. I wish I'd brought a pen and piece of paper now, because that was about eight questions. But let me try and
1: let me try and go through them as best I can. Firstly, on, on, on Alan Johnson, I suppose the the issue here, and again, talking to Labour MPs, you'll get one of two stories. One is that uh it's just been a quite ineffective campaign. The other is that he's being hamstrung by a leadership that doesn't want to waste its resources on this. And remember, the Labour Party could spend up to about five and a half million pounds on this campaign, but all the indications are that the Labour leadership is not interested in squandering its funds on this particular campaign. So whether this is a question of bad administration of a campaign or a lack of resourcing of a campaign, I'm not quite sure. But you would think that the Labour Party would become more visible following the local elections in the run-up to the European election. Thinking about how the campaigns will develop takes us into the land of the famous grids. I'm sure both, well, when I say both, all campaigns have got a grid in which they are planning their interventions over time as we get closer to the referendum and that is planning in terms of both issues and personalities. So I'm fairly convinced that as we get nearer the date the NHS will get a lot of airplay because it's an issue that resonates with the British public and already both camps are starting to spar over what the impact of a Brexit would be for the NHS the Leave camp is saying it would strengthen the NHS because all these migrants wouldn't be clogging up hospital beds and we could use the money that we send to Brussels to build more hospitals. The Remain camp is saying this could be a total nightmare because loads of doctors come from the EU and what happens to them and so on and so forth. So people will choose the battlegrounds that resonate. They've discovered that the EU doesn't have that emotional resonance, so they'll find other issues and link it to the EU. And the second thing is down to personality. We've got Obama coming later this month. That might be a big deal. I'm sure that David Cameron will do nothing but campaign in the last week or two of the campaign. And if I were a betting man, I'd say he'd probably go around the country a lot saying the word security quite often as a way of trying to get people to vote to stay. The EU is crucial to our security. And then, of course, there's the sort of uh, the X factor element, which is I'm pretty certain that both camps are trying to get celebrity endorsements as a way of resonating with the broader public, be they leading business people or leading showbiz people to come out and uh, state state a view one way or the other.
0: And so presumably there's going to be more scope for what you're doing because none of that sounds like it's going to be geared around telling people the facts.
1: I never for a moment imagined that this would be quite as frantic as it already is. So I'm sort of uh, in two minds about it becoming ever, ever more frantic. But yes, I suspect it will be. And I mean, one point I'd just like to make while we're talking is I just think this is a fantastic opportunity for social science. I know that's not what people are, are focused on in this debate, but actually for me, what we're doing is about illustrating to people what good social sci- science Research is worth, and what it's worth is the ability to inform people about the issues of the day. Not to hector them, not to tell them what to do, but actually to say, look, we've got a bunch of people who've been looking at these issues in detail using sensible methodologies for many years, and to the best of their ability, they've decided A, B, or C. So I'm quite excited
0: about that as the date grows closer. Thank you to Anand Menon. To find out more about his project and to discover more of the facts about how the EU does work, just visit the website at ukandeu.ac.uk. Now back to our panel. We heard a pretty robust defence there of social science and its value during an election season. We're all in different ways, I guess, social scientists, although some of us might prefer to be called historians, I don't know. But Finbar, let's start with you. I think you're definitely a social scientist.
4: Right? I've become a social scientist. You've become a social
0: scientist. So is this how you feel as, a, as an expert? Let's say we're experts. Maybe we're not that either. As an expert, that there is a demand for what you do, that actually people are hungry to find out more dispassionate analysis of these contentious political questions. And you... You detect the scepticism in my voice.
4: And you'll detect the scepticism in my voice, which comes down to the moment where why does anybody care and why are they engaged in a particular issue? Um, We stunningly did some uh, survey work on whether or not people actually do want experts involved in decision making. And so this is unpublished work, so I apologise. But we did a 2000 person survey across the UK. And we said, should experts be making the decisions or should the will of the people, should the majority voice be followed? And essentially, everybody's confused. A third of people say, yes, we should follow expert opinion. A third of people say, no, 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 we want it to always be referenda. And a third in the middle going, oh my God, I don't know what I don't know. to do. Is there an expert who can tell me what I should think on this question? <laughs> well, There's this huge spread of that kind of response when you're asking just uh, a naked question about expert and expertise and its role in decision-making. So I, but what about role in informing people before they make their decisions. Yeah. And and so this is the point where I step back and go, expert, be very careful with this word, because a lot of the debate, because we're talking about the referendum, is about the expertise around economics. Hmm. This is where I then have a problem, because there are people who claim to be experts, probably including myself at times, who frankly are talking about an assumption or talking about a narrative. They're not talking about something which is objective fact. And that's really dangerous. Erin, there's also quite a lot of
0: social science work on this question. And some of the broad conclusions are that people aren't particularly interested in facts. They only want facts that are embedded in, as Finbar suggested, narratives or stories, that stories tend to prevail over facts. There's also quite a lot of work that's been done on what happens if you take partisan divisions and inject some facts into those divisions. And it turns out people end up more divided, not less divided, because they interpret the facts in the light of their preconceived partisan position on these things. Do you think that we need more facts to inform political decision making by the public in these kind of bigger election? campaigns?
2: Yeah, it is the problem of you can bring the horse to water, but can you make them drink? I'll answer this by a very non-social scientific kind of analogy, or not really analogy, an actual experience from my own life. If I'm sitting on an airplane and somebody asks me, what do you do for a living? I will lie to them. I will say, I am an astrophysicist or I castrate hogs. I will not tell them that I am a political scientist because if you tell them you're a political scientist, they want to talk to you about politics and they will instantly believe uh, that they have as good, if not a better handle on the facts than you do. And this is because politics is a social realm, and it is something that people grasp intuitively. Grasping something intuitively does not mean that you are an expert on it, doesn't mean you have a lot of knowledge on it, but it does mean that you have a fair amount of confidence in it in a way that you wouldn't have a lot of confidence if you met somebody who says, yes, I studied the Higgs boson. And uh, what you were talking about earlier, confirmation bias is just one of a slew of biases that uh, these two psychologists, Kahneman and Tversky, who won Nobel Prize in economics, identified uh, a while back, Uh, and one of their books recently was a best seller thinking fast and slow the social realm is definitely one of these realms where people are very confident in their intuitions your brain is literally hardwired to make rapid judgments rapid social judgments about things like can i trust this person is this person knowledgeable Granted, you'll make those judgments based on whether or not that person is a woman or tall or other non-indicative, non-informative factors. So now I'm just going to confirm I am the elitist pro-hydrogen bomb voice on the panel. I am very skeptical that injecting more facts into debate necessarily leads to a more informed citizenry or a better policy outcome.
0: Of course, the danger of sitting next to someone on a plane and saying you're an astrophysicist is if by some unfortunate chance they are an astrophysicist, then you do end up looking a bit foolish.
2: Yeah, it's still better than having to talk to somebody about how their Uncle Harold voted for so-and-so back in 84 and that their taxes got raised. And that's why all politicians are lying sacks of you know what. So uh, I will take the embarrassment.
0: Helen, do you feel that expertise is currently under an unusual amount of pressure because we're living in and we always argue about what phrase we should use here this anti-elitist, populist, anti-oligarchic age. I mean, one of the elites that seem to be disliked, distrusted, maybe not academics, but experts telling the people what they ought to think.
3: I think that's true. But I think one of the things we must remember is, is that one of the probably the seismic event of the 2000s in politics across the Western world anyway, the Iraq war, fell apart in terms of the ability of the Bush administration and its um, allies to deliver what it said it was delivering because the supposed experts who said there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq got it totally, totally wrong. And so when you have a a situation where something which lots of people's lives um, depended upon and the experts weren't just wrong, that what the experts said turned to dust, it is going to have, I think, profound political consequences in the way in which voters react to experts telling them that this, that or the other is true.
0: And if you put those two things together, what you said, which is that economic experts don't have a great track record over the, well, maybe ever, but certainly over the past 10 years. Military experts, security experts, even, Aaron, foreign policy experts, haven't always delivered the goods recently. There are serious reasons why voting publics might be resistant in something like the EU referendum to being told, what they are told are the facts. I mean, some of the facts, as Anand Menon says, are fairly non-contestable and ostensibly neutral, and they do inform the debate. But most of the facts come down as though they are geared towards one or other side of the argument. And people are right to be suspicious.
4: Absolutely. And what you're talking about is how values then get attached to supposed facts or supposed evidence. And this is the point where everybody should be incredibly careful both on the production side and on the consumption side of facts and evidence around everything like the referendum back to the Iraq war. Are you being told what to do or are you being given an interpretation and being told how that interpretation was arrived at? A lot of the problems arrive when, for example, you have a dossier that you don't know where it came from or how it was put together. In the economic sense, you're given a flat number as to what's going to happen in terms of employment and you don't know how that was put together. For me, it is really important for the experts, and uh, you can hear the air quotes, to stop at the point where they say this is what the numbers look like using these approaches and assumptions and not to say that means you must do x give me a framework and give me some evidence don't tell me what to do thanks to helen aaron and finbar to
0: barry colfer and our special guest Anand menon and to our production team of katherine carr and lizzie presser next week we'll be trying to sum up what we've learned during these fascinating past few months with the help of Professor Paul Cartledge, the author of an epic new book called Democracy Alive, which recounts the story of democratic politics from its origins in ancient Greece right up to the present day. He'll be telling me how far we've come from what democracy once meant and how much we might currently be missing. I'll also be asking our panel to lay their views on the line and tell us how much trouble they think democracy really is in at the moment. Just how bad is it? Plus, a final visit to the nail bar in Brooklyn. Do please join us then. My name is David Runciman, and this has been the Cambridge Politics Podcast Election.